Welcome to today's episode of PDSD, Me, Myself and Him, by Scott Stevenson. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode 5 of my podcast series. Today's a big one, today we're going to be talking about the um, subject of suicide, how the um, suicide of one of my best friends um, affected me, how it eventually led to my own um, suicide ideation and suicidal thoughts and things of those natures. So a bit of a heavy, heavy topic today, but um, it's something that you, you can't do mental health and not talk about suicide. Um, and we'll get into the, the meat and bones of it as we go through the today's podcast. Um, I also want to put out an appeal if anybody's interested in talking to me or perhaps becoming um, involved in the podcast to help share their story. I'm more than willing to talk to people about doing that. I have a few more episodes left in me before I finish my story, but it's something I'd like to carry on doing. So if there's anybody else out there who wants to share their story, um, please get in touch. Uh, my telephone number is 07814-415161. That's 07814-415161. Thank you. Settle down, relax, get a cuppa, and we'll get on with the, the story at hand. Okay, so let's talk about suicide. Um, a few sort of ground rules, I suppose, or before we go any further. There is lots of good information out there. There's lots of help out there. But there's also lots of misunderstanding and stigma where suicide is concerned. And I am the first to admit that I did not understand suicide or people that have suicidal thoughts at all when I was a younger man. And it was only when I had real experience with it myself that my my attitudes and my um, prejudices began to change. Um, I was first exposed to suicide. My first real experience it was, it was a 20-year-old police officer working in Munster, Germany. And the first suicide I ever went to was a male soldier who hung himself in the attic of his block of flats. I absolutely have no idea why he killed himself, what was wrong with him or anything. Because back then, I didn't even bother to ask. Um, I just did what I was meant to do, which was wait for the, the coroner to come along and recover the body and made sure nobody interfered with it. Um, so that was it. Again, just dealt with it with a bit of black humour. You know, that's just what we all did. It's how we, how we coped. Um, over the next sort of few years I probably went to another five or six suicides or was very aware of five or six suicides. Uh, funny enough at that point they were all men. I, I was much older before I ever became aware of a woman committing suicide. Again probably that's more to do with the skewed demographic of being a soldier in Germany where there was far more men than there was women. But um, they, at that point then it was hangings, it was um, Drugs overdoses, although I have to be honest, most of the drugs overdoses were attempted suicides as opposed to completed suicides. And um, two people used the, the, the hose pipe into the into the car. Um, one thing that struck me, which I found utterly bizarre at the time, was that most of the people actually looked peaceful after they died. It was only much later I realised this was to do with, you know, 
um, the physical processes of dying and that it wasn't all about Hollywood and and all these other things. But I remember thinking that at the time. It was it, it struck me as weird. I, I didn't know much about it. Remember, this is before the internet really existed. So unless you actually went out down to the library and got a book on suicide, how you weren't going to be able to read much about it. Um, but I do know that I judged them, or I judged them from the height of my young um, ivory tower. They were weak, they were cowards, they were the most selfish individuals on the face of the earth. How could they do that to the people that loved them? How could they behave like that? Um, I remember thinking selfish. Um, now, years down the line, having been through it myself, having spoken to many people who have been through exactly the same things, and unfortunately having to forensically pick apart the life of some people who actually did complete suicide. Um, I understand how narrow and blinkered my, my thought patterns were about that. But I wasn't alone. That's how so many people see it. Um, now, suicide was just a run-the-mill... That doesn't do it justice, does it? But it was, a fa it was a feature of my working life. Not every week, not every month, but everywhere you went. And at least a year, you would have probably been exposed to one, maybe two two, two um, completed suicides and a few more attempted. There was always lots of, of attempted, uh, attempted for various different reasons. And most of them fell into the cry for help category, I would, I would be fair to say. But it was just something that, that was always in there. My attitude to suicide was always tinged by the, the damage it was caused on the people left behind. I never really stopped to think about how how hurt and how possibly damaged the people that completed it were, that they didn't see they had any other option but to take their own life. Um, and I used to always frame it in terms of running away and escaping. But now, having been through it myself, I understand it's something far more, at least for me, it was something far more complicated, far more... Uh, in depth and far more nuanced. So I want to talk about um, how suicide directly affected me when um, my friend committed suicide. Now, I was on um, deployed in Operation Telic in the autumn of 2004 to Basra, Iraq. Um, by this point, I left the, the, um, the Special Investigation Branch and returned back to normal general policing duties um, I was in the, the midst of my binge eating I was in the midst of um, struggling against my PTSD my bulimia um, was under control at that point but it was still present um, <clears throat> it just was what it was basically um, but what happened was I knew nothing that my friend was in trouble. Knew had not the slightest idea that she was struggling. Um, I knew some of her past. I knew some of what had been going on with her. But what had been happening recently while they were on tour, I had no idea about. And I remember it was just like any other day. Um, and what I didn't realise, it was actually Halloween. I had no idea at the time it was Halloween. And I didn't remember it was Halloween for years afterwards. But um, um, she came to find me um, 
in the Shatal Arab Hotel where we were stationed. And, and I didn't know at the time, but this was her coming to say goodbye. And I bumped into her and it was all, oh, how are you doing? Yeah, it's great to see you. Oh, you're looking great. Yeah, and chit-chat and chit-chat. Asked how the, the work was going because they were getting work to the bone at that point, the SIV sections. And um, with all the, the, every case of an IED attack was treated as a, as a murder attack or an attempted murder attack. So there was quite a lot of effort being put into, in, into developing cases if we should ever capture any of the, of the um, militants involved in them. And I remember thinking to myself, not consciously at the time, but by God, you're on good form today. You know, full of everything, as happy and as cheerful as I'd seen her in a long time. And we were talking about um, our upcoming R&R that was due to come in soon. And I was saying about I was going home to meet my to meet, to meet my ex-wife and that we were going away for a few days on holiday and all the rest of it. But we'd absolutely must get to come and meet my wife when she came back. Because at this point I'd known, I'd known, I'd known my friend for about, for about 10 years and she'd never once met my wife just the way it worked out. Um, so we were chatting away and we were joking and all, all the rest of it. And I just remember this really wonderful conversation with her um, and her, you know, being on fine form, laughing and joking and all the rest of it. And I, me- um, I remember saying, you know, uh, making a crack about why are all the good ones taken? And I remember feeling immensely flattered that she thought I was one of the one of the good ones. And just laughing and joking, j- joking with her. Um, I turned around, waved goodbye after making arrangements for her to come in, come and you know, come for dinner and stuff when we got back off tour, and off I went. Um, not more than three, four, maybe five minutes later. Um, I heard a muffled gunshot. Never thought too much more about it. That's what happens unfortunately on operational tours in Iraq and places like that there's lots of gunshots uh, and I didn't know at the time that that was my friend putting her issue weapon into her mouth and blowing her brains out and I remember being in complete and utter shock when the word got out that something had happened and then to begin with I didn't even know it it, it was my friend that happened to just know it happened quickly realised it was one of us because it, the cordon was around our, our, our area of, our, of the camp, which was our part. And then very, very shortly afterwards, um, it became apparent that it was my friend that had taken her own life. And I remembered being so puzzled that this could be happening, that this, this was this was real, that this wasn't some sort of cosmic joke. And I couldn't help but, you know, start to think about the immediate conversation we just had. I couldn't understand how somebody could complete suicide from that state of mind because they were as happy and as cheerful and full of life as I'd seen them in ever. And that's where my fundamental misunderstanding of of the the mental health problems that go along with suicide kicks in because at that point I didn't understand that you know you've usually come to peace with yourself admitting your decision or some people have I would learn this myself later on that that was just the way things were um but then 
I just bundled it all up and stuck it inside the deepest, darkest recesses of, of my brain. I kept functioning. I went to work. I went to the, the, the parade to say goodbye to her when she was put onto the, onto the plane. I stood on parade with tears streaking down my eyes. And then I went back out to work and just carried on working. That's what I did. I never stopped to think about things. I never stopped to grieve. I never stopped to think because I just didn't want to. So it's probably about maybe a week, week later, maybe 10 days. Um, my friend's body's been sent back to the UK. Life is continuing on as normal as it does on operations. Um, but she was always in my mind. I started to dream every night, rethink the conversations we had. I started to imagine the scene and the situation that had happened where she'd taken her own life. The the blood patterns, the, the, the spatter marks, the position of the, the body. And I, I didn't realise at this time this was a form of suicide ideation. I was imagining the suicide of my friend and I was beginning to imagine my own suicide. And this is the weirdest thing for me. The rationale behind it was completely irrational. What I started to think was that if I could just have one more conversation with her, I could understand what I'd done wrong, what I'd missed, how I'd not seen the signs in my friend. And it was becoming all about me, nothing to do with her. It was all about me, but you know, that's apparently fairly normal. Um, I was going through the stages of grief. I was hammering myself with a guilt hammer, but I just got in my head to this really crazy idea that, you know, if I just crossed the threshold and caught up with her, I could at least understand and keep her company. And at no point in, the, in this was I thinking about anyone else. I wasn't thinking about my wife, my family or anything. The sole focus of everything I was doing in my life was my dead friend. I, I, I just came to this irrational belief that somehow if I plucked up the courage to be like her, I could be with her and, and, and help her in the afterlife like I wasn't able to help her in her own life. And it sounds absolutely nutty here, talking back to the microphone saying these things, but it governed my whole day. I was so distracted. And the I've mentioned before about, you know, the, the, the troublemaker in me. Oh my God, he was in full control. I was an absolute disaster. Um, I doubt, doubt my OC at the time, um, who was called Ellie Rollins will ever hear this, but if, if you ever do, Ellie, my apologies to you, because I was an absolute nightmare for you in that period in time. Um, and I'm sorry about it. I never met. I never meant to be a nightmare. I just wasn't in control. So it brought up to one of the other tasks I was doing at the time was um, high risk search for um, clearing routes for IEDs so that, you know, try and find them. 
And about, I think it was maybe about four weeks, maybe five weeks after um, my friend had passed, that I um, was out doing a, um, a search with the Royal Engineer search team. We were searching down one of the main roads in, in, in Basra. And I was walking along, doing my thing, metal detector in my hand, you know, controlling my team who were all around me doing things, working to the, the engineers that were directing us all. And I remember recognising um, something on the ground that would be normally a trigger. I hate something a bit suspicious, a bit dangerous. Um, you would slow down and all the rest of it. I didn't make any real conscious decision. I just looked at it and thought, oh, that could be something. And I just kept on walking. And I kept on walking. And then I stood on it. And I remember thinking, oh, shite. Nothing happened. Um, as it turns out, I, mean, I thought I was walking onto an IED. As it turns out, I was walking onto where there was an IED the day before. Um, it was the disturbed ground that had given away in the, in the wedge where they'd buried the 155 shell. It wasn't there than that when I stood on it. But just for that sleepwalking five minutes or so, you know, the subconscious part of me had decided, you know, yeah, there's your chance, go for it, let's do it. And it come on me, you know, literally that quickly and out of the blue. Now, I have no idea whether this is normal, this is how it happens to other people, or whether it's, um, you know, a long, a long built, built, up, built up thing. But that's how it happened for me. Um, I then just carried on with my carried on with my my job as normal. Just took a shake of myself, and that was it. But the reality of what I'd done started to weigh really heavy on me. And from that point onwards, I used to start regularly dreaming that I stepped on the device and it went boom, and then this mythical afterlife appeared, and I had these mythical conversations with my friend. And they stuck with me until 2017. I used to have these recurring nightmares and recurring thoughts. Those recurring nightmares were always linked to periods of binge eating and periods of, um, of, of um, purging. And I punished myself for years and years and I never told a single soul about any of it. I acted as if my friend's suicide had very little effect on me, when in reality it came to dominate my entire life at periods, not all the time, because sometimes I could wall it away and keep it away. But I never told my family, I never told my wife. Um, I came on to father children. I obviously never told, <laughs> told them. Um, I went through numerous interventions with doctors and um, psychiatrists, etc. Every time I was ever asked, I always said, "No, nope, no problems with suicide. Never do that. Could never do that to the ones that I, you know, I love." Kept saying I'd never leave my children behind, I, and every time I just put my game face on, just lied through my teeth, because I did think about it. I thought about it regular. I thought about it often. I imagined multiple different ways to do it. And it was never about escape. It was never because I didn't feel my life was worth living. It was just that search for answers that was the driver for, for me. Because 
I knew I was never going to get an answer in this life. So in my mind, I was just obsessive almost with trying to get an answer in the other life. Um, and that's what bred me. What changed things is last year, I just started to eat and eat and eat. In about the June or the July time of last year. Um, and it progressed through and through and through. Um, and it actually, I broke down crying in my office on the phone to the doctor on October the 31st, um, 2017. No idea, no, at that point, I had no idea why it was that date. Um, and I went off on the sick um, and eventually had to leave my job uh, just because I just wasn't fit enough for it anymore. But it took another four or five months in therapy before I made the connection about the significance of the date of the day that I'd finally fallen apart again. And it was the anniversary of my friend's suicide. And in that period, I'd been asked repeatedly about my suicide scores and I'd repeatedly been thinking about it, but I wasn't even admitted to myself. I refused to admit it to myself. So what does that, my, my story, what does that tell people or how can it help people? Well, the answer was I was just scared to talk. The stigma and the fear around admitting to being like that for me was just too much, even for myself. So I lied to myself. And the thing is, as soon as I admitted it to myself, as soon as I admitted it to my therapist, as soon as I put it in my storytelling, as soon as I admitted it to my, my current partner and then to the rest of my family, the weight that I'd been carrying for all those years of guilt just began to fade away. And it, I am as good as I have ever been mentally in my adult life now. I am at a place where I'm happy, I'm content, I'm, I'm able to talk about everything the person I love deeply and the ability to do this came with freeing myself from the shackles of my guilt my my, my fear and my self-loathing by finally admitting the realities I was able to deal with them and move on and that is the the heart of the crux of today's episode that if you are struggling no matter how terrible the thing you're struggling with, no matter how you think you will be judged, telling the story will, in my opinion, always result in something for the better, or at least it has for me. Um, that's the end of today's episode. Um, I hope this is some help to some people maybe out there that are struggling with suicide, or people that know me from the past to understand some of my more erratic behaviour over the years. Um, I didn't name my friend uh, friend in here. Um, I'm still not sure why, because 30 seconds with Google will tell anybody what her, her, her name was and stuff. But there's just something about me just doesn't want to say it on the, on the podcast. Maybe, maybe another day. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll, I'll speak to you again next Wednesday. Goodbye, everyone.